Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Quite an admirer of the writer Robert Wright, who's a evolutionary psychologist who also writes a lot on Buddhism, and uh, he wrote a piece uh, called "Mindful Resistance is the Key to Defeating Trump." In it, he says outrage gets in the way of empathy for Trump's supporters. I don't mean empathy in the usual sense of feeling their pain that psychologists call emotional empathy. I mean cognitive empathy, understanding how the world looks from their point of view. A better understanding will uh, help, he suggests, in uh, perhaps not only uh, somehow deflating the conflict, uh, but also bring about uh, an end to the kind of uh, despotic thinking that is currently in place. So a Buddhist Peace Fellowship did an article around the same time about different approaches to uh, resistance, and they wrote positively about Muslim activists in St. Louis who handed out donuts at a Trump rally, and the goal was for them to um, encourage lively conversation mutual understanding. The only problem was they spent much of the uh, time while they were handing out donuts being inflicted with all kinds of racial abuse. So, but these pieces um, sort of present this idea that I've uh, been familiar with because I've been going to Buddhist centers and a Buddhist for very, since in my teens, so it's been now well over 40 years. And this idea uh, certainly stems from the fact that America is a Judeo-Christian country and we like to present the Buddha in the framework that's most familiar, which to us is the sort of forbearing, turn-the-other-cheek model of Jesus. And we like to present the Buddha as essentially uh, someone who very calmly uh, was willing to listen tolerantly to all kinds of uh, different views and engage in very uh, uh, mindful debate. And uh, it's understandable that we would like to have this... uh, this image, because it's the most familiar to us. In the West, we love the idea of the nonviolent, completely forbearing, uh, gentle martyr. And so we, we, you know, it's understandable that we want the Buddha to be one more uh, example thereof. 
the problem is that it's really not so simple. In fact, um, one of the interesting uh, constant themes and motifs I've found in the Pali Canon over my years of study of it and preparing to become a Buddhist teacher was that, one, the Buddha did not ever, out of his way, seek to have any kind of discussion with people whose views he knew were completely uh, different from his own. Moreover, he avoided very often getting into uh, dialogues with people he considered to be foolish. In fact, the second chapter of the Dhammapada, which is the most important collection of the Buddha's teachings, the very second chapter is called Balavaga. Balavaga means idiots, fools. And in it, the Buddha says twice, in case you didn't, in the case readers don't get the point or listeners don't get the point, should you not find someone who is morally your equal, pursue a solitary course. There's never any wise fellowship with a fool. A fool could spend all their life with a wise man without comprehending the truth. Uh, he defines fools as people who are driven by fear and in, tend to try to solve their insecurity by accumulating as much wealth and power and fame as possible and tend to overlook the value of altruism and uh, caring about others. In the Elephant Sutta, he goes even deeper. Uh, the Buddha didn't like to even explain at times to people who he thought were hostile his decisions. There was a famous case where a Brahmin was very angry that the Buddha was admitting the children of the rich into his... Um, monastic life. In so doing, these children who would no longer be, uh, would work at their family's businesses. And so he was essentially indirectly depriving uh, Brahmins of some of their wealth. And so this gentleman went and started uh, insulting the Buddha, and the Buddha didn't answer, didn't get into a dialogue, simply said, uh, asked him one question. He said, if somebody comes to you, if you go to someone and offer them a gift and they don't take it, who does the gift belong to? And the guy who's very angry says, well, it belongs to me, it's mine, because they didn't accept it. And the Buddha says, well, I don't accept your idiotic words, so they're yours. That's it. That was the end of the conversation. It's not what the Buddha did uh, in terms of seeking out cognitive empathy with people whose views were uh, diametrically opposed to his own. With Arita and Sati, two monks, you can read about them in the Snake Sutta and uh, Majjhima Nikaya number 38, Two monks who were purposely spreading mistruths and teachings that were completely antithetical to 
uh, what the Buddha was teaching, and the Buddha went to listen to them, and when he heard them repeat these views, he didn't seek to instruct them or try to change them. He simply said, you worthless men, due to your wrong views, you've misrepresented us, you've brought endless bad karma upon yourself, and he summarily kicked them out of the Sangha and instructed, furthermore, none of his followers to get into debates with them. Now, this might seem harsh, but he was actually, as uh, Tan Jeff, a great monk notes, was acting out of compassion for those in the Sangha who might be ensnared into endless vitriolic debates with people who would never be convinced. Now, I'd like to believe that the Buddha didn't uh, tend to seek out, never proselytized, tended to avoid long debates wherever possible, unless he was cornered, very often refused to answer a whole variety of questions from people of other uh, perspectives. He never would answer the question of, whether or not there was a God, because in the Buddha's path, God is completely inessential. It's a non-starter. Uh, I'd like to believe that he avoided this because um, views are not established rationally. They're actually set very, very early in life. There's a great deal of evidence that our views are established as early as five, six, seven years of age, and they're mimetic in the sense that we adapt views as a way to win attention and affirmation from the family systems and culture within which we grow up. We very early on in life attach our views to very strong core emotions. So those who have progressive views. I grew up in a family where uh, my mom was raised by socialists. My father was a, while he wasn't drinking, he was a big advocate for uh, both equal rights and took me literally as a four-year-old to march with Martin Luther King. So they were both pretty progressive. And at a very young age, I started to associate the views associated with conservatives and uh, the Republican platform with disgust. It would literally activate a feeling of kind of nausea. And when I would hear people who were verbalizing the views closest to my parents, uh, I started to feel feeling Shirley Chisholm, every time I would see her, I just start, you might not know who that is, I'm far too <laughs> old, but she was a very central figure in my childhood, and I would just feel elated whenever she would be on uh, television. So this is very common. In Jonathan Haidt's research, he finds that uh, almost all strongly held views are actually uh, uh, associated with strong emotions. Here's my favorite um, study, and uh, it's actually quite fun to read this one because it's a little bit shocking. 
he used the study to show how deeply our uh, emotions can get involved in our beliefs. So he reads to individuals this story, and then he gets their perspective on what they think about it. The story goes like this. It's very short. Julie and Mark are brother and sister. They are traveling together in France on a summer vacation from college, and they decided it would be fun and interesting if they made love. Julie was taking birth control pills, and Mark used a condom to be extra safe. They both enjoyed having sex, but decided never to do it again. They kept that night their secret, which made them even closer to each other as the years passed on. What do you think about that? <laughs> Now, everybody wants to believe that their views are very logical. So at first, people would go, oh, that's terrible. What about the genetic defects of the child? And hate would say, well, let's go over it. Did you not hear that Julie's taking birth control pills and Mark's using a condom? How or why would you think that genetic defects would play any role in this? A little bit more frustrated, people would say, well, it's illegal. <laughs> to which hate would say, no, if you heard it's set in France, and in case you didn't know, in France, that's perfectly legal. <laughs> Even more frustrated, people just as determined would say, it'll ruin their relationship. To which he said, no, at the end of the story, I was very clear, they were closer than ever together. Finally, people would go to the real truth that underlines all beliefs. They would say, that's disgusting. <laughs> it's wrong because it's disgusting. I would like to say that my disdain for the current regime and virtually everything it's associated with is entirely intellectual, and certainly a great deal of it is, but a lot of it is just also triggers disgust. And I'm sure that right now somewhere there's someone giving a talk about East Coast liberals with the exact same kind of, well, I'm a progressive, not a liberal, but with the same kind of disgust in their own experience. Haight goes on to, in his book, it's a wonderful book, why can't we talk about this constructively? It's something, a title like that. Um, Haight says the reason why we have our the firmness of our beliefs and why beliefs are so difficult to change is that because they're tied to core basic emotions, we each believe our beliefs are self-evident and natural, and therefore anyone who disagrees with us is somehow unnatural and is somehow going against the basic law of the universe. The Buddha noted exactly the same in the Paticca Samuppada, Uh, he notes that before we get to Ditti Upadana, which is the beliefs we cling to, there's Vedana. Vedana is gut feelings. And from these gut feelings, our beliefs spread. 
Furthermore, just to drive home the challenges that come with trying to change someone's views, Philip Tetlock of the University of Pennsylvania noted that political views indicate profound incompatibilities with one's perceptions. Conservatives, we know from massive clinical studies from, that were done by Stanford and University of California, people who have, are conservative have significantly greater amygdalas, which means they respond to stimuli with greater amounts of fear. And especially when they're taking risks, they tend to have far greater triggering of their amygdala. Progressives, or increasing people to the left, tend to have much smaller amygdalas and tend to take risks with far less fear. Philip Tetlock goes on to note that due to this, uh, conservatives uh, have far greater reaction to germs and contamination. In fact, when they did a study of the college rooms of conservative students, they had far more cleaning products and liberals had far more books. <laughs> Conservatives grow up in homes that prioritize obedience and tend to see life in terms of strict dichotomies, us versus them. They believe the world is a dog-eat-dog -dog environment. They trust economic competition, but don't trust social programs. As I read this aloud, it almost catches in my throat. <laughs> Progressives have higher dopamine settings. They tend to seek exploration. They love to travel more. They seek novelty. They see indifference rather than binaries. And they have far greater positive views of social programs, but don't trust unregulated financial competition. So we have different brains, we have different perspectives on the world, and it triggers very strong emotions, but is that all, Josh? Should we still try? No, it's not all. George Lakoff, the famous cognitive linguist, did a study and he found that conservatives and progressives don't even use the same language. We, well, conservatives use word like, some of these I've never said in my life, so it's just fun to try to say them aloud. Character, discipline, tough love, strong, self-reliance, responsibility, here's the one that always gets me, backbone. Just <laughs> never said that ever in my life. And common sense. Progressive likes phrases and words like concern, care, help, health, this is not like a George Carlin routine, safety, nutrition, dignity, oppression, diversity, and equal rights. <laughs> So we don't share the same language. We've got different brains, different perspectives on the world. What could go wrong in a conversation? In fact, most of the studies by I've read indicate that if you want to change someone's core beliefs, you don't have a dialogue with them. You ask them to experience the world from a different perspective. You ask someone from Texas to go live in Bed-Stuy for a month, 
then you'll wind up with somebody who's not quite as uh, adhering to the conservative uh, program. So I'm not advocating cutting off people. Far from it. Cutting off, uh, we know from family systems, modalities, and therapies, uh, is not skillful. It's not a solid uh, solution. When we cut off people in our life because they have extremely differing views, we actually, um, two things uh, happen. One, the anger that we might feel gets frozen in place. And very often we uh, tend to start to rely on what's called avoidance coping as a way to uh, simply survive being in a world with people whose views are quite uh, foreign to our own. Avoidance coping is one of the most psychologically unskillful tools there are. Whatever we avoid, people, places, things, tends to take on far greater uh, anxiety, is associated with far greater threat than if we simply learn to strategically, skillfully interact with those people without causing distress. So for this reason, I, especially when it comes to people that have been in our life, uh, friends, family, uh, people we have relationships with, rather than cutting off, or two, rather than continually trying to change another person's core beliefs, is the third option, which is to establish really good boundaries, which is to essentially know when we are heading into topics where there is virtually no possibility of uh, changing the other's views. And you'll know that because you've already tried. <laughs> and it won't have worked at all. And so at that point, we decide that that topic is off limits. And we inform the other person that we've made this decision. And we back it up with actual actions. Now, in the case of my own life with my father, who, after starting off life uh, as a very uh, anti-authoritarian leftist guy, towards the end began to politically shift later on in his life. He never became anything remotely like what we've got now, but he was certainly by any means like a... Uh, he became increasingly more right to the right than he was when I was a kid. And so I drew very strict boundaries around that. I drew strict boundaries around many other issues where what I did for a living, what, I, what my work was, was never good enough. And I never, ever told him that I was quitting my job to become a Buddhist teacher and live by donations. That would have been, even though he was a Buddhist practitioner himself, he would have not been very happy about that. So I set some very strict guidelines. And to do this, um, we have to be willing to overcome uh, a couple of psychological factors. The first is that it's deeply embedded in us in childhood and our early 
uh, coding that we want everybody to like and approve of everything in our life. And it becomes very hard to say to people in our family systems, um, I'm not going to talk about that with you. I'm not going to talk about who I'm dating. I'm not going to talk about where I work. I'm not going to talk about who I voted for. It might seem like that's pretty much ruling out everything, but in fact, the more I ruled out with my father, the more actually wonderful and deep the conversations were because we got past all the uh, sort of superfluous, or the, not superfluous, because these issues are important, but we got past the sort of cognitive stuff and we got to the underlying emotions. And there's really only five core universal emotions and four uh, tribal emotions. So we're all pretty much working from the same palette. Uh, yeah, conservatives had a little more fear. <laughs> but we're still working from the same basic color palette. So we might not ever understand how somebody converts their emotions into beliefs that are exceedingly foreign and even seem cruel to our, ourselves. But we can understand at any point the emotions that lie beneath. And I found that repeatedly with my father. Interestingly enough, I have a very good friend who voted for <coughs> Trump. And uh, the reason we can still maintain our friendship is uh, because we never talk about it. I have a friend who's a Trotskyist who says I'm a complete sellout because I'm a democratic socialist. That I was thrilled when Bernie Sanders became a viable candidate because he almost has, I, I registered as a democratic socialist when I was 18 and I never dreamed there would be somebody actually articulating my beliefs and there he was and my Trotskyist friend says <laughs> that Bernie is a complete distraction from global revolution where the workers, well, whatever, I don't understand it. Uh, <laughs> So we don't talk about politics either. Now, there are some, before I get into, uh, well, I'm going to say a little, one more word about boundaries, which is boundaries are generally set by ha feeling and connecting with anger. When somebody says or does something that is transgressive, that makes us feel unsafe, that makes us feel essentially threatened, it's important to, rather than to simply develop resentments, which are stories about how terrible someone is, I mean, that's fine if you really want to do that, but it won't keep you safe. The point of anger is to actually connect with it, to allow it to arise, and to then constructively ask ourselves what we need what we need to do to keep ourselves safer so that we don't get triggered as much sometimes we might want to run past anger this idea of okay is this someone that i need to take a break from is this someone that i need to and say right now i can't talk about x or y subject and you see how you ask the anger and you see how it feels. Now, at first, anger will almost always want to cut off 
someone that's uh, angered us immediately. We'll want to get rid of them. But it's our job, the left hemisphere job, the adult part of the mind's job, to sit with the inner child, which is the somatic core emotional responses, and try to come up with a negotiation where we can uh, resolve or uh, develop rules for the relationship, inform the other person if you continue, I'm going to leave or get off the phone. And then if they persist, you actually follow through. People are emotionally at root attention-seeking beings. That's how we survive and thrive. And all humans find it extremely painful to have someone walk away from them. So the best way to impart a lesson with someone who is not listening is simply to get up and walk away. And that doesn't mean we're walking away forever from a relationship. But I found uh, one wonderful event. Uh, my father, at one point, was constantly, repetitively asking my sister when she would have grandchildren, when he would have grandchildren, as if my sister was just ovaries on legs. It was really offensive. He didn't really care about anything else about her. And she informed him that if he asked one more time, she was going to get up and go. And he would ask that every single time we got together. And thoughtlessly he asked again. She very calmly packed up her stuff, got up and left. And from that day on, he never asked her again. And their relationship got much better. A good friend of mine is a Buddhist teacher who is married to a avid Trump supporter. And uh, their relationship had a significant turn for the better when he informed his partner that if they brought it up, he was going to get up and walk away. He did that. His partner never brought it up again. Now, sometimes... Parents or relatives or work colleagues, and this doesn't have to be about politics, it can be about parents who just are enmeshing, family members who just want to know or have opinions about things we don't want to hear their opinions about. People will, when we try to establish boundaries, will try to push back. Setting boundaries is never, ever easy. The reason we need to set them is because we've tried in the past to be very clear that uh, we don't want to engage on certain topics. So to make this vital transition from childhood coping strategies to adult coping strategies, which are always based and founded upon refusing to practice avoidance coping and reliance upon setting boundaries and stating needs clearly, that's when we truly become adult in our lives. We have to be willing to tolerate that people will not be happy about it. But that doesn't matter. 
Now, I'd like to add some point right now, and this is, I think, uh, this, what I'm proposing is not appropriate for everyone. I was talking yesterday and uh, about this, and a good friend said, well, I can understand why this approach would be very appealing to you, but as a person of color, I can't sit silently and allow someone to verbalize beliefs that could very well jeopardize my life or the life of people I care about. And that's very true. Everything she said was 100% true. If I, I'm not a person of color, I have a lot of privilege, and so it's easy for me to establish boundaries and simply rule off conversations with people whose views I believe are harmful, but not try to directly try to change their views. I tend to protest and believe in direct action protest, but trying to sit and individually engage with Trump supporters is not for me. But I can deeply appreciate how some a member of the LGBTQ community or a person of color might not be able to sit silently and listen to someone validate a white nationalist racist president. So I'm not saying that this approach is for everyone. I'm just saying that it's an approach worth considering. Finally, the last part of this process is once we've established safe boundaries, the role of forgiveness is not to get another person whose beliefs feel unsafe uh, to get them off the hook, nor is it to allow them back into our life to the extent that we welcome uh, engaged, lengthy debates which will never be resolved. The role of forgiveness is to get people who are constantly using every tool they possibly can to bait and antagonize and to, uh, to essentially lure us into conversations we don't want to have to get them out of our heads. Forgiveness is not for the other person. Forgiveness is for ourselves so that we don't have to carry around a story or a... Uh, an image of a person, or a memory constantly. So it's a form of psychic house cleaning in the sense that uh, very often after we've been pulled into a conflict, it can take a very long time because if we don't process and feel the anger, if we don't take the steps the very actions to make sure that that event will never happen again. And if we don't then subsequently forgive, then we might wind up carrying around the story with us for a very long time and suffering. Buddha, there's a wonderful old Buddhist story about uh, the old monk who's training the young monk, and he's given the young monk the lesson about, you know, uh, you're not supposed to touch members of the opposite gender. Uh, right after the old monk gives that lesson, uh, 
there's an he sees an old woman crossing a river and she's being she's struggling due to the current and the old monk rushes in and asks if she needs help and she does and he walks her by the hand across the river and he comes back and he walks with the young monk for a while and after about a half an hour the young monk said but you just broke the rules you told me that we're not supposed to touch someone uh, of, a, of a different gender and the older monk says well I let go of that a half hour ago you're still carrying it around <laughs> clinging uh, which is one of the two forms of suffering in the Buddha's teaching comes from carrying around a story in our head a story about how bad or good or unfair other people or things are so the process is feeling anger so that it doesn't get stuck and then get deflected onto others turning anger into wise protective ac actions and then forgiving in that order so we're going to do a little bit of that right now in our practice and then we'll have time to uh, ask questions I'm going to turn up here so just relax close the eyes and if you want to sit in the front if you want to stay cooler there's lots of room in the front so feel free to uh, come in so let's first cultivate a state of ease the basic foundation of meditation is to balance between effort and ease in fact in the Buddha's path to enlightenment all the factors are about balancing effort with ease and relaxation tranquility so in the posture the simple way to balance it is to make sure that your head stays upright and try to combat any tendency of your head to slouch over your body and generally keep your chin if possible a little lifted like you're looking at a tall building but let the rest of your body which we'll work on next relax So the upper half of the body straight but relaxed. Let's take a long, full inhalation through the nose and lift as we generally do the shoulders up while we're breathing in, like you're trying to touch your ears with your shoulders. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, drop your shoulders. And if it feels appropriate, gently pull your shoulders back to open up your chest create a lot of space for the breath take another full inhalation like you're breathing in a candle scent and pull in your abdomen really tight like you're 
pulling in your belly and then breathe out through the mouth and soften the belly and try to receive your breath from this point on in a soft belly. Belly, the abdomen is the uh, foundation, the very base of the vagal vagus nerve, which articulates all of the core emotional states and survival-based emotions. When we feel heartache, it's from the vagal vagus nerve clutching the chest. And when we feel fear, gut wrench, it's when the muscles around the abdomen get tight. So one core way to speak to the midbrain and tell these core systems that we're safe is to breathe slowly and relax the belly. Third in-breath, squinching the toes, buttocks, fists, and face, the muscles, clenching the jaw, tightening around the eyes, pinched nose, and then breathing out. Wonderful. So try to cultivate that state of having arrived in life. It's that feeling and state of mind we experience when we arrive at a destination. You've landed, you've gotten out of the car, you've put your bag, your heavy bags down, and now you found a seat that overlooks an ocean or a lake or a mountain, valley. You found a really favorite spot in a park. One of those times in life where when we arrive we feel no need to give any heed to thoughts about planning for the future, any nagging issues that are unresolved, unfinished business has no attraction.
So for a little while, let's just do what we do when we arrive at a place that we love. We settle in and we drink in the sensations that are actually happening right now. Some are pleasant. Maybe the sound, the air conditioner or the cushion. Maybe some sensation are not so pleasant. Feelings of heat. But it all adds up to a singular moment. In time that we want to drink in not only the external sensations, the sounds, any feelings that are arising and passing, subtle tensions in the stomach or feeling contraction ease in that area. Maybe feeling the eyes settle behind the eyelids. Noticing calmness in the palms. Noticing any slight discomfort in the back or legs. You'll never have this experience again, so spend some time opening to this moment in your life. You can always put off a thought and pick it up but you can't put off moments and return to them. One way to think of meditation is a kind of game. The goal is to try to stay present as long as you can. But like in all video games, there's something trying to snare you. And in the game of meditation, it's thoughts, which if you get snared by, they open up into complete virtual realities that pull you entirely aware from the actual sensations that are going on right now like one of the ghosts trailing in a Pac-Man game. So see how long you can just stay present. Thoughts will come up to you and try to lure you, just note them. 
give them a name or a, a label if you want. You're just saying thought. Don't try to get rid of the thought. Just know that if you focus on it, it will pull you away. And if you do, though, the beauty of this game is you can always start over. And every time you realize you've drifted away from the present, you get an extra bonus point. Give yourself a nice reward because the goal of meditation is not just to stay present but also to develop compassion and kindness. So every time you realize you've been snared by a thought, it's worth celebrating because you're strengthening your awareness.
So at this time, I'd like you to bring to mind either an individual, which would be most useful, or uh, a situation which triggered some resentment, a lingering story about someone or a group being deeply unskillful, unkind, uncaring, transgressive, aggressive, see if you could bring to mind any recent interaction that triggered anger. And really try to work up that feeling. Don't try to cut it off. If necessary, add some sense of outrage, how dare they. The goal being to feel the anger. Where do you feel it in your body? When you have been mistreated, where do you feel it? Not when you feel sad as a result, but when you feel infuriated, where do you feel it? Try to just hold that feeling and let go now of the story of what happened and just be with this core emotional state in the body. Some people feel it in a tightness in the jaw, back of the neck, biceps. Some people feel it in the throat, contraction of the muscles around the eyes, in the sternum. Just be with it. Don't try to repress it with stories Allow yourself just to experience anger. Giving it attention in a safe container. And then, how can we address this anger? What do we need to change in this relationship to be safe? What do we need to do 
anger is an emotion signaling that someone has acted in a way that is either transgressive or makes us feel unsafe. The role of anger is not to sit and steep and to become resentful. The role of anger is to spur us to to set boundaries to protect ourselves and to confront injustice. So what do we need to do? This is a matter of visualizing perhaps or just allowing our intuition to respond. You'll know you have the right action to take when you start to feel the core anger start to subside. Again, what do we need to change? What rules do we need to enact? And then finally, having felt the anger, not trying to repress it, having addressed what the anger is trying to signal, the next and final stage is to release the story from our mind because now we no longer need to repeat the story again and again to keep safe because we've set an intention to establish new rules to protect us. So bring to mind an image of yourself for a moment. And reflect on a time when we've acted in a way that caused harm to someone else. something we did that was less than skillful. And when you come up with that person, bring that person to mind. And just whisper to yourself, to the degree I have acted unskillfully, I ask your forgiveness.
bringing again an image of yourself to mind, whispering to the degree I've at times acted unskillfully, not only to the detriment of others, but also harmed myself. I am willing to forgive. And then finally bring to mind the image of someone who has spoken or acted harmfully to you. Knowing that you will have to live with the results of your actions just as I have to live with the results of mine, that there is no getting off the hook. When we act harmfully, we have to live with the outcome, knowing that I'm determined to protect myself Now I'm willing to let go for the sake of my own peace of mind I forgive you So in a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl. And whenever you feel so inclined, slowly open your eyes and look at the ground in front of you and try to integrate sight into your awareness. And then after you've done so, staying aware of the feelings, emotions, sounds, sights, thoughts, a fully mindful awareness. Try to bring that into the rest of your evening.